What is up, everybody? Uh, I got a question to start up here. Um, is today the first day of fall? Does anybody know? It wasn't yesterday, and it's not tomorrow. I never know when the first day of the new season is. I know it's one of these three days. So today is? Then we must, what? Saturday. Great. Well, that was my intro for the sermon. I didn't have a great story to start, but uh, my name's Cole. If we haven't met yet, uh, I am on staff here, which you could probably guess. Uh, and we, if you're new, just last week, uh, Mark wrapped up our Welcome Home series talking about what it means to be a part of God's family. And it was super sweet, super encouraging. I felt very uh, fired up to run harder after the Lord. And now, for the next six weeks, we are going to be going through the book of Colossians, uh, which is in the New Testament. Uh, you guys can flip there now if you want. Uh, we won't quite be there yet, but we will be there eventually in that first chapter. But here, here is my actual question that I'm thinking about as I am thinking about the opening uh, 14 verses of Colossians. My question is this, is what are ambitions that you have for your life? What would constitute a good life for you if that thing happened? Um, I, you know, I'm from Minnesota and I listen to, yep, I listen to a Minnesota Vikings podcast. It's my favorite sports team. Podcast I listen to called Purple Daily. Their whole mission statement is we just want to see the Vikings win a Super Bowl before we die. That is, that's their thing. So that's their ambition. You know, there are plenty of other ambitions. <laughs> that, uh, that people have out there. But, uh, you know, it could be anything, right? It could be like, man, I really want to move to some really cool, warm place and get out of my hometown, and then, you know, everyone can see this interesting life that I'm living. It could be I want to get married at this age and have this many kids by this age and live in, you know, a ranch-style modern home by this age, and then I'm going to have all this cool furniture, all this stuff. These could be things that you want in your life. You could want to be somebody who travels a lot, who has that influential, you know, Instagram page or whatever that thing is that comes to your mind when you think about the good life, how you would love for your life to turn out. And as I was thinking about this question, the quote that came to mind is a quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says this, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. I love that quote because I think that it captures an idea that the Bible talks about quite a bit, super, super well. And that idea is this, is that the Christian life is an invitation into endless joy. We were created for God, and God is the creator of all good things, which means that if we are in relationship with God, then we have entered into the way that we were made to live, and we can enjoy him. 
But when I'm thinking about that, I'm asking myself, do I view the Christian life that way? Do I view my Christian life, do I view my pursuit of Jesus as actually the most joyful, good, worthwhile ambition that I could have for my entire life? I think that sometimes I forget that when we accept Christ, we are simultaneously invited into a world of glory, a world of excitement, a world of amazement, and a world of joy. It's the best decision we could ever make. And I think a lot of people view the Christian faith or the Bible as some outdated, archaic religion that actually isn't worth our time and actually maybe is a hindrance to our joy. But as we go through the book of Colossians over the next six weeks, I actually think that this book is going to challenge that assumption really strongly, and it's going to show us, as we see the mysteries of Christ, that this is the best life that we could possibly live, is to live wholeheartedly for Christ. And we're going to see three invitations in these first 14 verses of the book of Colossians that, that God has laid out for us. So if you guys already flipped there, I'm going to start in chapter 1, verse 1, otherwise it'll be on the screen. Paul's writing it, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. So as with any book that we start, it's always helpful to have a little bit of, a little bit of context on what we are stepping into situation-wise. So obviously, Paul is the one who is writing this letter. A lot of you guys... Most people probably know who Paul is. He wrote a lot of the New Testament. He's kind of the Mac Daddy of missions and church planting. That's been my word when I've been thinking about, uh, you know, Paul. So he did a lot of good stuff. But Paul has a pretty crazy story, right? Like he went from being this, this super legalistic, Phariseeic person who's persecuting the church and saying, I want nothing to do with Jesus. He has an encounter with Jesus. Jesus changes his entire life. And then he goes and he just sells his life for the gospel. And he goes and he tells so many people about Jesus. And then, of course, he becomes this Mac Daddy of missions in the New Testament. So that's one part. The other group that we see is the church in Colossae. And this is what was pretty crazy to me this week, is a lot of the cities that you see written to in the Bible are usually like pretty prominent cities in the Roman Empire. They kind of mattered. They had influence. They had a lot of people coming to them except for the city of Colossae. It actually was like the least important city that you could imagine. It was surrounded by a bunch of important cities. At one point in time, it was like bumping. It had a big road that went through it, and then they got rid of that road, and then it was just like dying. Uh, so my uh, family, my family is from Owanka, South Dakota. Has anybody here heard of Owanka, South Dakota? Anyone? Probably not. So, oh, yep, Sean's got it. Uh, so that's where, that's where my family is from. It used to be a pretty popular town relative to, you know, western South Dakota, how that goes. But, you know, there was, a, there was a river that went through it. It attracted a bunch of, like, you know, shops and people to live there, all that stuff. River dried up. Everybody moved out. And now there's just, like, a bunch of abandoned buildings that are there that don't really mean anything. So, in some sense, Colossae is not quite to that extreme, but we could view it like that. The thing that brought everybody to the city was taken away. And so now there was just this population that was just hanging out there, but they weren't really like 
super wanted. They weren't really super influential. Um, and what also is fascinating is that there has been zero effort, zero, to dig up this city at all to find out anything about this city today. They didn't care about it then. It seems like nobody cares about the city now. And yet, one of the most important books ever written in the history of the world was written to it, revealing these super unbelievable things about God. So why did God do that? Why would God write this glorious book to a city that nobody cared about, that had no influence in the broader Roman Empire? It seems like it'd be a pretty bad business strategy if you're trying to start a movement to have a former murderer write a letter to a city that nobody cares about if you want your message to spread to the ends of the earth like God says that he does. Well, I think two things. One, verse one tells us that it happened this way just because God wanted it to happen that way. It was God's choice that it would happen that way. The king of the universe chose for these seemingly strange circumstances with people who would seem like they aren't the best candidates to hear about the glories of Christ and carry that to so many other people. And what I think has struck me as I've been studying this, the amazing truth that I see as I'm looking at these opening pages of Colossians is that we don't become Christians. We're not saved. God doesn't bring us from death to life because there is something intrinsically good enough in us. Like that qualified us on our own. We weren't smart enough. We didn't like logically figure out that God is out there and that we should call on him. Um, God just did that because he loves us and because he wanted to. Like God brought us from death to life because he wanted to. And that was super clear to Paul and the Colossians. And you see it in these opening two verses because what's true is that if nobody else cared about the city of Colossae, if nobody then and nobody now cared about it, God did. God cared about the people in that city. And at the end of the day, that was ultimately what mattered. And I think the first invitation when we see these first two verses in Colossians is that it's an invitation to humility. An invitation to humility. The temptation, I think, that a lot of people, ourselves included, uh, fall into is we tend to have a really big view of our abilities and ourselves and what we can accomplish if we just set our minds to it, kind of that idea of like the world is what you make it, the world is your oyster, uh, I think people in Boston say. Um, it's like the world is just like this thing that you can make out of it what you want. You know what I'm saying? Like we hear that all the time. If you set your mind to it, you can do it. Maybe people in Boston don't say that, I don't know. <laughs> but here's, here's what I'm getting at. The problem with that general way of thinking right, that the world is what you make it, is that if our worth, right, the value that we bring into the world is tied to how much we are able to make out of the world, 
what we're able to turn our circumstances into, then when we fail or when things inevitably don't go as we thought that they would go, then we have nowhere to go with that. And that falls entirely on us. And that's a lot of pressure. So many of us strive after things on the basis of our own merit or our worthiness or our earning. We spend so much of our lives pursuing those things. Working hard in school so that you don't mess your life up down the road. I heard that one a lot. Uh, Maybe it's like going from relationship to relationship, looking for the approval that you're craving because that's how your life will matter and have value. That's how you will make much of your name here. Or maybe if you're in this room, you're just trying to be like some super Christian who has all the right answers and knows all the stuff and, you know, you find your identity in religion apart from love for Christ. But what I think is fascinating is that this clearly, this like trying to work so hard to exalt ourselves, that wasn't the case for Paul and for the Colossians because they had this this amazing peace right from the get-go. Because when they were saved, when God brought them from death to life, it was like obviously clear to them that they did nothing to earn it. Two very unlikely groups of people. But God did that. And when he did that, they knew that God was absolutely in control. There was no more striving for status. There was just a joyful, humble obedience to their God who had saved them. And a life of constantly striving for status, to make your name great, to make your name matter, I really think is one of the most exhausting things we could possibly do. And it's empty. It's so empty because so many people have tried to do that. But for the Christian, we can stop striving to try and make our name great In fact, we don't have to think about our name at all because Christians don't have to worry about the approval of the world because they already have the only approval that ever mattered anyways. And the king of the universe saying, I want you. And dying for you. And they saw that and it humbled them. That's what matters. And this is the joy of the invitation to humility in these opening parts of Colossians. But let's continue on because there's so much more for us here. So verse 3 through 8 will be where we're at next. Paul continues. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You've already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel, that's come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learned this from Epaphras. That's how we say that name. Our dearly loved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf 
and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. So Paul's thankful. Paul is thankful for this church that he is writing to. But you want to know what is kind of nuts is that Paul had actually never even been to this church. He didn't start this church. That Epaphras guy, who we all know so well, started that church, heard the gospel, went, told it to a bunch of people in Colossae. They got saved. Paul's never even been there. He's just writing this letter to people who are his brothers and sisters in Christ. But Paul says that he's thankful for them because he's heard about their faith and about their love, which if you read any of Paul's other letters, was something that Paul cared a ton about. And I think that sounds great, right? Like, Salt Company would be a great ministry if we were a people who were known by being faithful and by being loving to each other. That would be awesome. But what I want us to hone in on, because I think a lot of us can stop there, is I want us to hone in on why the Colossians were like that. Why was that something that was so prominent and characteristic about them that it flowed outside of the boundaries of their cities? And what we see is that they had a deep faith in Christ and they had an even deeper love for each other than anybody else had seen before because of the hope that they saw reserved for them in heaven. Because they looked at heaven and they said, man, I want to do these things. I want to follow Jesus like this. They weren't faithful and loving because just because those are good things, obviously those are good things, but they were that way because they were being led by their hope. The affections of their hearts were for heaven. And being there someday, that's the second invitation in Colossians. In these opening verses is we have an invitation to hope. But not just hope generally. What was the hope that was reserved for them? What was so persuading to them that led to an entire change of their lives. Well, verse 5 and 6 tell us that it's the hope they heard through the gospel. That the world was messed up, but Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross and then rose from the dead so that anybody who would believe in him would be able to spend eternity with God. In heaven. That hope. The Colossian church found so much hope and joy in the fact that they would someday be with Jesus, that it was the foundation of their zeal for their Christian life. And so the question I'm asking as I'm reading that verse, because that was one of the things that I was just, I couldn't stop thinking about over the last couple of weeks, was do we view heaven like that? Like when we think of heaven, does it impact at all the way that we live our lives? You know? Because I think that sometimes it can be one of those things that we just like hear about so much that it just becomes white noise and something we know 
about Christianity, but it's like really far off. When you think of heaven, does it lead you to be more faithful to Christ and more loving of the brothers and sisters that God has put around us? I don't know that I always do. And that wasn't the case for the Colossians because that also wasn't the case for Epaphras who told them about this hope. When he shared the gospel with them, these Colossians heard that good news and they appreciated it. They didn't just receive it, they appreciated it and saw it for what it was and they loved it. And they became so gripped by Jesus by the hope of being with that Savior someday. That all the trivial, insignificant things in this life didn't matter anymore, and those divisions that so easily come to us just began to fade away. And we get that, right? When we have something that we're looking forward to, if you have some, like, big event that you've been looking forward to for months and months and months, and that day finally gets there, that week finally gets there, Good luck trying to give you a bad day. You're so fired up because you're like, my joy for this event that I'm going to vastly outweighs any inconvenience or any hard thing that I go through now. Because it's so good. And you love it. And you're so excited for it. That is what they felt. The faithfulness of the Colossian church was driven by their affections for Jesus and the hope that they had of being with him someday. And I, I don't think that most of us think of heaven like this, which means that the Colossians probably saw something about it that we don't often see. Because it affected them so strongly just that one idea. And as I read that, here's the good news I'm thinking of. Because I'm, you know, probably one of the most optimistic people that you meet. So I'm always looking for the bright side of things. If we don't see it, if heaven doesn't affect us like this, but it did affect the Colossians like that, then that means that there is so much more to the hope of being in eternity with Jesus than we've ever known. There's so much that we're waiting for that we're going to go and experience someday. And it probably just hasn't hit us yet. But it hit them. And it can hit us. Because the gospel that they received is the very same gospel that we have. There's always more joy to be had in Christ. There's always a deeper cherishing of him that we can have that motivates us to holiness. And this affected their lives. So what would it look like for us if we saw heaven and cherished Jesus Christ like this? I think a few things. There's probably like a ton of things, but I'm just going to say a few. Number one, 
I think we probably wouldn't get so mad at our roommates when they leave a mess around. You know? Because you'd be like, I really don't care about this. Like, this is dumb compared to what I have my hope in. So you're like, maybe I'll talk to them about it later, but in the meantime, I guess I can just help them clean it up. It's really no skin off my back because I already have everything that's good and everything that I need. That's one thing. You'd probably love them more. <laughs> Second thing that I think of is we probably wouldn't get so anxious about things that we can't control or that we don't know the outcome of. Because if we had this like incredible hope in heaven, we would know that things end up pretty good for us. You know, there's so much suffering and so much hard stuff that for any other person who doesn't have this hope, it would and it should cause like a ton of fear. But we have clarity in knowing how the story ends. We live our Christian lives with the end in mind. And number three, we honestly would probably be more excited to go and tell people about Jesus. It, it wouldn't be something that we would feel like we ought to do or that we should do, but it would be something that we couldn't help but doing because we were so unbelievably excited for what was coming. That's what Epaphras did in verse 7, we see. And the more we see our hope in heaven and our hope of being in the presence of Jesus someday, the more we're going to find ourselves naturally reflecting him in our day-to-day -day lives. And there's always more joy to be had in him. And that leads me to the next thing. So let's read our final verses here, 9 through 14. Paul continues. He says, for this reason also, since the day we heard this, right about their love and their faith and their hope, we haven't stopped praying for you. We're asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience joyfully giving thanks to the Father who's enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Paul hears about the excitement and the zeal and like this fervor that the Colossian church has for Jesus because of their appreciation for the gospel. And he says, guys, that's awesome. Here's actually what I'm doing in response to that. I have not stopped praying that you would grow in maturity. That you would grow up as Christians. That your zeal for Christ, your love for Jesus would power you on to understanding of God and understanding what God says is good, and that you would love to live in that. And in doing that, they would find themselves living 
lives that are worthy of the gospel, lives that are worthy of the thing that is already true about them, that they are now in that kingdom of light. They've been rescued from sin. They are now saints in Christ. And Paul's saying, I pray that you guys would live like it. Live in what's true. And that's the third invitation of Colossians, is that it's an invitation to worthiness. An invitation to live what's true about you because excitement for Jesus should always lead to growth and obedience to Jesus. So I became a Christian uh, my, the summer just before my freshman year of high school. Didn't grow up going to church. Didn't really know anything about Jesus. So when I got saved, it was all just so new to me. And I remember I was a part of a youth group my sophomore year of high school, just for like a little bit. Uh, and I saw one of my leaders, he was the kind of guy who would like dance a lot when he was worshiping. You guys know the youth group leaders who do stuff like that? Maybe you don't. That's who this guy was. His name was Josh. And I remember being like, wow, that's crazy. He's just like so on fire for Jesus that he can't stop dancing when he's, when he's worshiping. And everybody would talk about how great Josh's zeal for Christ was. They're like, nobody loves Jesus. Or everybody would be like, I want to love Jesus like Josh does. I want to see what he sees. Well, a few years later, Josh completely abandoned his faith in Christ. And now is like super anti the Bible, super anti-Christianity, super anti-church. He left it all behind. I think I had a hard time understanding that for a while, how something like that could happen. And I think that things like that are why Paul prays so consistently for the maturity of the Colossian church. Paul says that the excitement that the Colossians have for Christ is awesome. But now he's constantly praying for them that they would grow in their spiritual maturity because we see in verses 12 through 14 if you are a Christian, then you have been brought out of darkness and into the kingdom of Christ currently. Like you are now a part of Christ's kingdom, of Jesus' kingdom. You are his child. We talked about adoption. We talked about being a part of the family of God. It's not something that's super far off. It is a reality for us. Now we are citizens of his kingdom and citizens of the kingdom of light. Don't live like citizens of the dominion of darkness. We don't, because we know who saved us. We have a new identity, and that should change everything about us. We are called to live like we are worthy of the gospel, because if you are in Christ, you are worthy of the gospel. Jesus made you worthy of the gospel when he died for you. You're not earning it. You're living what's true. God has enabled us to share in the inheritance of eternal life with Christ. And that's important for us to hear because our world isn't short on momentary things that get us fired up and excited. We have so many things that want to distract us. But excitement without depth always fades. 
probably in the last year, you guys have had so many things that you've been excited about that now you're just like, I really don't even care. <laughs> Paul wants our zeal for Jesus to lead to joyful growth in him. Doing good, growing in knowledge about God, having joyful thanksgiving. The invitation isn't for us to be people of shallow excitement that lack life change, but people of deep joy that is reflected in every single part of who we are. To know our God more. And here's what I wonder, is what do you think will happen as we grow in maturity and knowing our King more? We'll see him more clearly. We will cherish him more deeply. We'll love him with everything we have. And we talked about that hope that motivates the Colossians to live lives of holiness. How much of a greater excitement and zeal do you think would happen if you knew the one that we were excited for more deeply? The more we see Jesus, the more we love Jesus, the better heaven is in our excitement because we know what's waiting for us. Man, maturity is so good for us. And our humility becomes deeper because we see the glory of God in more amazing ways than we ever have before. This invitation to worthiness. This invitation to live lives that are worthy of the gospel is an invitation to go deeper with Christ than we ever knew that we could. There is always more depth. Always more joy to be had. To go deeper with our king who's rescued us from hell and brought us into eternal life with him forever. We're going to see as we read through this book together that this gospel message that Jesus came and accomplished for us, it's not something that's archaic or outdated. The Christian life isn't archaic or outdated. It's so much more than that. The gospel is an invitation into the greatest joy that you could ever experience and into the joy that we were made for from the very beginning. To be with our king. And that, friends, is an invitation into endless joy. Man, I can't wait to keep going through this book with you guys. Would you guys pray with me? Jesus, thank you so much for allowing us to be here tonight. God, thank you for uh, giving us your word. There are so many messages and things that we hear that seek to lead us astray, but God, you have given us your truth to guide us, not just so that we can be good people, but so that we can be Christians who love you and who seek to know you more and love you more. God, I pray that we would be students of your word 
I pray that we would be people who love what you love and hate what you hate. And Jesus, that you would just show us more of yourself and make our hope that is reserved for us in heaven so much realer to us than it ever has been. Jesus, help us to see you more. And let that affect every single part of our lives, God. We love you so much. We can't wait to worship you this weekend. It's in your name we pray. Amen.